0: In the past, it would have been unusual to have a circle of people larger than, let's say, 20 or so, and now some of us have well over a 1,000 Facebook friends and all of these connections, and they're constantly something to look into. But I just want you to imagine for a second what your life would look like if you had one singular goal. A goal that stood above all the rest, that took precedent over everything else, and that informed every decision you made. That's what we see in Paul's life. And we see when we see this word, we can include mixed company. It's just a generic term. It doesn't just include men, for example. What has happened to him has been good for the gospel. He says, You may think that it's bad, but really it's a good thing. It may look like the gospel is being crushed. It may look like it's being snuffed out. It may look like the gospel could never advance under these circumstances. But on the contrary, he says, the gospel is advancing. I want you to know that it has served gospel. Now, what sort of person would say that? What sort of person would be sitting in a dark hole in the ground or, or, or even if it's a better prison in the ancient world, an imprisonment no less. What sort of person would look at a situation wherein they are imprisoned and say, actually, it turns out this is a good thing because the gospel is going forward. Only a person with a singular focus can say that. Only a person who exists for one goal, to see one goal achieved, could say that. And we see this in our world as well. Look at any elite athlete and you'll see the same intense focus. It's laser-like. It's singular. One thing matters. The only thing that matters is achieving the goal. Uh, Do many of you know the name Tom Brady, the quarterback? Okay, good. Good. Then the illustration works. Otherwise, it was just going to totally bomb. So, I'm reading about Tom Brady's daily schedule this past week. Of course, Tom Brady has more Super Bowl victories than any NFL team franchise in the history of the NFL. A single man has more Super Bowls than any combined team. And at 44, he seems unstoppable, which 10 years ago was unthinkable. Quarterbacks are long retired at that age. He's still playing at an exceptional level even this season. As you might imagine, his routine is rigorous. He's up at 6 a.m., and he's in bed at 8.30 p.m., among many other things. But I want you to hear what he says in one interview. Here's, here's a quote from him. He says, So whether that's what I eat, or what decisions I make, or whether I drink or don't drink, it's always football-centric. Let me just read that one more time and see if you can hear Paul almost here. So whether that's what I eat or what decisions I make or whether I drink or don't drink, it's always football centric. Literally everything in Brady's life had to be the best. And that's basically Paul here. Now, he's not talking about throwing a ball around. Literally, everything in Paul's life is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if he's in prison. It doesn't matter if he's on the road on his missionary journey, planting churches in places like Philippi. It doesn't matter if people are trying to destroy his reputation, if they're attacking him, beating him, throwing him out of the city. It doesn't matter that he's constantly criticized. The gospel is his singular focus. Now, what does he mean about the gospel advancing? What's exactly happening that tells us that the gospel is advancing? What has happened for him to say that? Verse 13. So that... Here here it is. He's going to explain what the advancement is. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. I'll come back to that in a second. And to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The gospel has been made known and visible to everyone because everyone knows why Paul is in prison. He's in prison for Christ or because of preaching Christ. He mentions this Whole imperial guard here. And depending on your translations, it may reflect something different, such as the original word, the Praetorian Guard, which is really just the underlying word here. It's a Latin word. Uh, But we basically have two options with this word, or or two better options, I think. Uh, First, it could be a reference to the palace of the governor. So if you have a King James Version, you see that refers to the palace. Or Second, it could be a reference to the personal guard of the emperor of Rome. And that's how most translations take it. And that second option seems most likely since the next phrase is... ...and to all the rest, referring to people. So in all likelihood then... Paul is in Rome as a prisoner under the guard of the imperial soldiers and he says the good thing about this is all these Roman soldiers here in the capital city of the largest empire in our world happen to be hearing about Jesus because I'm here. The gospel has been made known, as he says, throughout the whole guard, which may be an exaggeration, but it's certainly making a great ripple through this guard, which at the time numbered around 6,000 soldiers. Now, I've always loved this cryptic remark at the end of Philippians. And anytime I teach the book of Philippians, I always want to point it out. As you go to the very end of the letter, as Paul's concluding the letter, he mentions greetings. So, look what he says in chapter 4, verses 21 and 22. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. That is, in Philippi. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. And then he says, the brothers, that is the saints who are with me, greet you. All the saints greet you. Listen to this, especially those of Caesar's household. So in Paul's imprisonment, somebody, whether we're talking soldiers or part of the royal family or servants in Caesar's household in Rome, have been converted by Paul to the gospel of Jesus. When you put Paul in prison, what happens? Does he stop preaching the gospel? No. Roman soldiers are converted. Servants are converted. Caesar's own people are converted. Can you imagine living your life that way, that every situation is a gospel opportunity? Every single situation is an opportunity to advance the gospel, which is ultimately, to be clear, God's work, but he has called us to participate in that work. Now, Paul's influence affects other believers as well. So, it's not just that it's affecting this high-profile situation, but it affects everyone, including the other believers in Rome. Verse 14, "...and most of the brothers and sisters, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold, are much more bold to speak the word without fear." I want you to hear the full thrust of this. Look how many words he uses here. They're much more bold to speak the word without fear. And why is that? They're confident in his imprisonment. They're confident in his imprisonment in the Lord. Now... As I've said, this is a reference to other believers and their confidence in the Lord. They're confident in the Lord. But this is so interesting because the persecution, the suffering, the imprisonment doesn't deter them. It doesn't decrease their confidence. It only serves to increase it. They are emboldened. They're more confident. They're more willing to speak. They're more willing to take the chance that they'll get arrested as well. They are more outspoken and we're also told they're not afraid. They do it without fear. They're not afraid. Now, why are they emboldened? I wrestled with this for a long, long time, an inordinate amount of time trying to think, why is it that Paul writes these words that they are confident in his... In the Lord, in his imprisonment, or by my imprisonment. How does imprisonment give someone confidence? And there's a couple of things. I'm really riffing kind of on the Puritan commentator Matthew Henry here. I think he probably comes closest. He says, first, they see Paul's confidence. They see the comfort he receives from the Lord. And they say, well, if he's getting that, then it's worth it. And we all know this experience when we see someone who is emboldened to preach the gospel. Someone who is serious about their faith, laser focused about their faith. It doesn't discourage us, not typically. It usually encourages us and emboldens us. I've used the analogy before of coals on a fire, something like that. We draw heat from each other. That's exactly what seems to be happening here. Second, many of them know that if they go to prison, at least they'll have a good prison buddy in Paul. Really, they are seeing what matters and they are seeing that the powers of the world have nothing to offer as valuable as the gospel. One writer asked some helpful questions on this verse and I want to pose those to you. Why is it That we are willing to help out in certain situations, but we're reluctant to share the gospel. Put another way, why do we show courage under certain circumstances, but lack courage to be bold in gospel witness? A lot of us would stop and help someone change a tire, but how many of us will walk across the street and share the gospel with our neighbor? Or with the person cutting our hair, or our doctor, or whoever it may be. This is the challenge, and I feel this challenge, too. This is a finger-pointing exercise, okay? There's something in us that makes us almost fearful to share the gospel when we'll do all sorts of other bold things. So what can we do to be bolder witnesses? This may seem like a cop-out, but it's actually the biblical answer. The biblical answer is that we ask God to give us boldness. This is precisely what we see the Christians doing in Acts 4. You may recall that story. That in Acts 4, uh, the the disciples, it's Peter and John, are persecuted. They're warned, don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And they leave. And as they gather and share this story with the rest of the believers, what do they do? They gather together there in Acts 4 and they pray. And what do they ask for? They ask for boldness to speak the word without fear. And what does God do? He gives them boldness to speak the word without fear. So we should follow suit. We should pray for boldness to enter conversations about the gospel. We should pray for boldness to have gospel conversations with the people, let me say first, in this neighborhood. There's streets all around our church. Okay? We don't need to go across the nation or across the world. Those are important. But if we're unwilling to be bold right here in our neighborhood, we don't really have any business getting on a plane and flying across the world. Okay, we need to do it here we need to pray for boldness to be bold in our neighborhoods. Not this neighborhood, the neighborhood where we live. Okay? Be bold there. We need to pray for boldness to be um, uh, confident to speak the gospel in our families. Okay? We have lost people in our families. We need to be praying for boldness in our job places or in our hobbies or in our friend groups. All of these things would apply. The point is we need to ask God for the boldness ...that we see here in this text. Now there's a contrast in verse 15... ...and we sort of switch gears here. Paul tells us that he's not universally loved. You might think Paul would be loved by everyone... ...after all he's a biblical author... ...and he he gives us so much of the New Testament per letter... and, ...and yet there were people... ...who were out to make his life miserable. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry... So look, they're preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others do it from good will. So it is possible to do the right things in the wrong way. It is possible to work in a church, to be part of a church, and to do it in the wrong way. Yes, we've seen it. Some are preaching, Paul tells us, for selfish reasons. He says it's a competition. They have a vendetta against Paul. Their preaching likely even has attacks built into it. They probably say, look at Paul, he's in prison. Look, look what his preaching got him. Clearly he's doing something wrong. He's not favored by God. And then there's another group, he says, who preach Christ with goodwill. And I love this word, goodwill, because it seems to be a reference to their commitment to the gospel. Their desire is to see the gospel purely proclaimed. They aren't worried about personalities. They don't care who the preacher is. They're only concerned with proclaiming Christ. They do it out of love for Christ. Verse 16, the latter, talking about those people of goodwill, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. So the others are saying, look, he's in prison, he's messed up. But the latter know I'm here to defend the gospel. And they're not attacking Paul. They know that he's a faithful servant. And since their focus is on the gospel and not on themselves and not on their own accolades, not on what they can accomplish, they continue to proclaim the gospel, not worried about Paul's situation. But the other group isn't singularly focused on the gospel. Instead, they're focused on something else, namely themselves. Verse 17. The former, that is that group that preaches from envy and rivalry, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Why does this group proclaim Christ? Not because they're focused on the gospel, but because of their own desires, because of selfish ambition, they're seeking their own accolades. And they're doing this, we're told, in order to harm Paul, to make his life more difficult, to afflict him, to add, uh, to add a burden to him in prison. And they're doing this because there's a personal vendetta involved. Either they're jealous, jealous, that he gets more attention or or they don't like what he's doing or they disagree with what he's doing. And so they're after him. They're out to get him. They aren't interested in the gospel. They're interested in making him look bad. That's their first priority. They're interested in making Paul seem inferior, casting doubt on him, making public accusations against him. Now, how do you think Paul would respond? He'd be ticked off, wouldn't he? Verse 18. In verse 18, Paul says, What then? which is a fancy way of saying, so what? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, that is falsehood, or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Now, I recognize that I'm stopping there with our verse. There is a next part, but we'll pick that up next week. Yes, and I will rejoice. This is one of those cases where we have to do... 18b and get 18c as part of the grouping next week. And your Bible, if as paragraphs, might even show you that. So Paul says, so what? As long as Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice in that fact. As long as Christ is preached, that's good news to me. Whatever happens to motivate these people, Paul rejoices over a singular fact, that Christ is proclaimed, that Christ is made much of. In that I rejoice. And this is really the key to all of this. For Paul, one thing matters, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is secondary, including how people treat him and his circumstances. Success for Paul is very simple. It is making much of Jesus. That is value number one. Now, we can extrapolate this into our own lives. Success for us, a successful life, an a, uh, important life, a, a life well lived, for us means making much of Jesus. I'm talking about individuals. But we can obviously apply that to the congregation as well. Success for Monument Heights doesn't mean necessarily being a booming church. doesn't necessarily mean having the greatest and latest ministries. Success for Monument Heights means one thing making much of Jesus, regardless of the outcomes, regardless of what people think. Now, we're well aware within our congregation, and I'll address it today, that we have our own issues with strife, division, and factionalism. That is, there is this effort to create disunity at times, like all churches. There are indeed a small few within our numbers who are seeking to create division through the use of fear, through the use of gossip, And through the use of accusation. All things that are warned about repeatedly in Scripture because they are toxic to a congregation. And if it continues, there will come a time to address it more directly than I'm doing now. This is the 50,000 foot um, address. But for now, I think we can say with Paul that those things that are being stirred up are petty and secondary, they are things that don't matter. There are things that should not hold our attention. Our job, my job, is to remain focused on the gospel of Jesus. And as long as we are focused on proclaiming the gospel and making Jesus known in the city of Richmond, we can be confident. We can move forward. And to the extent that our focus on the gospel is singular, not being distracted by all the petty and secondary things, taking precedent over all else then we can rejoice because the gospel is being proclaimed. And my commitment as the one who stands before you most Sunday's face, tasked with preaching Sunday after Sunday and leading this congregation, is to do everything within my power to keep our focus singular, to keep it on the gospel, to point to the gospel again and again and again. And when others try to detract from it, through whatever method or means they're trying to do it, To point away from what they're doing and to say, look, the gospel is what's at stake here, and let's move forward. And so we do that through vigorous and faithful worship. That's why I make a big deal out of what we do here every Sunday morning. Careful teaching of scripture and doctrine. I make a big deal out of that too, and we do it on Wednesdays and our Sunday school classes. And then finally, that unwavering commitment to the gospel. That is all about what Christ has accomplished on the cross and in the empty tomb on our behalf. And that is the good news that we, as broken vessels, are tasked with carrying into the world. We are ambassadors to that good news. Everything else doesn't matter. Everything else will go away. What matters is that we're faithful in the gospel. One commentator summarizes this section with this phrase, and I love it. Here's this quote. Things that matter and things that do not. So if you're writing a list this morning, you might even do that. Things that matter in one column and things that do not in another. Things that matter, gospel. That's the simple reality of our move forward. There are things that matter, and frankly, there are things that just don't matter. The application for us is to develop a singular focus. And to that end, let me offer you four suggestions as to how we might Develop a singular gospel focus. First, I've mentioned this one, but I'll repeat it. Pray that the Lord would give you a singular focus for the gospel of Jesus. Pray for that. That's where you begin. Ask God to give you that focus that is laser-like. Number two, meditate daily upon the gospel. And the way you do that is by thinking about it constantly. And learning about it through good books and good teaching. Fill your head with the glorious truth that Christ has died for our sins and think about that and bring yourself back to it every time. Every failed, bring yourself back to the reality that in Christ you are forgiven, you are blameless. Every time someone comes against you, remind yourself that the gospel has positioned you as righteous before God. Every time something goes wrong, remind yourself that your greatest hope is in what Christ has done on the cross. Number three, bathe in Scripture. Read large chunks. Read large chunks, big books all at once. Study small portions closely. Digging apart word after word, verse by verse. Just read, read, read. Read in every way possible. I believe it was Spurgeon who said that Scripture should be so much a part of the Christian life that when a Christian is cut, they bleed bibline. Consumers see the world as radically changed. So that when you're driving down the road, you're quoting Scripture. And you're thinking through the lens of Scripture. And you're thinking like a crazy person like Paul in prison saying, Who cares? Just so Christ is proclaimed. Then number four, prioritize Christian community. I preached on this last week. Relationships with other believers will nourish nourish you. And that's why we need them. That's why you can't do this thing alone. That's why Paul writes to the Philippians. That's why the believers in Rome look at Paul in prison and they're encouraged and then they're out in the marketplace talking about Jesus. Your faith will weaken apart from believers and Satan wants to isolate you. Alone, you won't stand. But with other believers, part of God's people, we are built up, nourished into Christ. That's how the New Testament speaks about this. You're strengthened by other believers. In fact, I've always found it amazing in that passage in uh, 1 Peter where we're told that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We're told to remember our brothers who are suffering that same thing around the world. And so there's some connection to the temptation that you and I face, to the spiritual warfare that you and I face, and knowing that we are not alone. Once we're isolated, we're easily picked off, just like any animal in the wild. So we need other believers. It will strengthen our faith. So what I would encourage you to do is take advantages of the opportunities we offer here at the church. If you're not involved in Sunday school class, get involved. If you're not coming on Wednesdays, that may not be your cup of tea. I don't know. We have a couple of options, though. We have a family small group on the first and third Wednesdays of the month. And then we have an advanced sort of theological doctrinal deep dive on Wednesdays that you may or may not like. But that's there as well. And then in the works, as I've already said, are this idea of getting groups in homes where we can just share Christian fellowship. I'll close where I began. Imagine your life with this make much of Jesus. What would it look like if that was your life? Can you see some priorities that might shift? Can you think of things that you need to cut out of your life today? Not because just because they don't really fit in with the singular focus. You know, it's like Tom Brady going to bed at 8.30. I'm sure he could rationalize staying up to 9.30. There's nothing wrong with that. But he has whittled everything down to a singular focus. So is there something you need to do there? Can you see the impact that that would have on your relationships? You might even want to do this. You might even want to write down a few things that would be different as a result and just envision what it might be like if you were to have the singular focus on the gospel of Jesus. We search for happiness and serenity in our lives. I think it's just what we do as human beings. But I want to remind you of one of the main themes in Philippians, and that's rejoicing. The word occurs again and again at times here. I've titled the series Gospel Gratitude because we see again and again that the gospel produces a deep-seated joy and gratitude that grounds us and settles us in a way nothing else can. That's why Paul can look at his opponents who are criticizing him while he's in prison, for that matter, and say, yeah, I rejoice. I rejoice. I pray that we, myself included, would learn that secret as well. I want to leave you with an invitation uh, before Chris comes to pray our pastoral prayer this morning. You've seen us receive uh, Ken into our member. you're here and you're not a member, we would love to have that conversation with you. We have a straightforward path of welcoming you into this fellowship. And essentially what that means is you intend to bring yourself into fellowship with us so that we can walk alongside you, we can encourage you, we can challenge you, and you're inviting us into your life in a way by joining our church. You know, we're being invited to help you on this road. So if you're interested in that, I would love to talk to you. You can catch me after the service. I'll be out um, front here. Or you can send me an email this week or give me a call on the office phone. I'll be in the office this week as well. Or you can reach out to Pastor Rupert. He'll be back in tomorrow, though he is on vacation today. Um, If you're not a believer and you've heard this, you've heard, wow, this this man Paul, he's so compelling. Look at this. He's, He's in prison and yet he's saying, there's only one thing that matters, Jesus Christ, I would pray that your eyes would be open, but but if you want to have a conversation about that, I would love to have that conversation with you. Any of our pastors would, anybody that you've connected with here, lay leaders in our church would be happy to talk with you about that, and we would love to show you what it means to walk with Christ. Then finally, as always, if you have any questions about the faith or questions you're struggling with, we are available for that as well. With all of that said, Pastor Chris is coming to lead us in a pastoral prayer now.
1: Heavenly Father, we've been challenged today to really think about what what is our main goal in life? What is our main focus? Lord, we can only imagine what this world would be like if we, your children, your people, put our complete focus on you, living for you and building your kingdom. Lord, please help us to be bold for you. Help us, Lord, no matter what persecution may come our way what sacrifice or what cost is involved to proclaim your truth, your gospel, your love to this lost world. Lord God, give us an opportunity to share the gospel. And Lord, please make us bold. Speak through us. Lord, so this lost world may be saved. Lord, may we truly rejoice as your word is proclaimed in our church, in our families, in our community, and throughout this world. Lord, you said you want us to walk together in unity, that the world sees something that is unique or unusual when people are unified. Lord, please forgive us when we don't do this. Lord, help us to truly repent and truly seek to glorify you in everything we do and say as individuals and as Monument Heights Baptist Church. Lord, I often tell people, things happen, problems happen, but it's how we resolve them or how we deal with them that really matters. Lord, help us to truly focus on the gospel as the main thing. Lord, we have so many distractions and the evil one has done a wonderful job of just getting us running after all these other things. And Lord, the whole time, the world is just going crazy. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for failing you in the past, for not keeping the main thing the main thing. But, Lord, may today be a day that we as a church, we as individuals, we as families, make a commitment that we are going to proclaim your truth, that we are going to go out into our families, in our community, and, Lord, we are going to just share the gospel boldly. Lord, we just want to glorify and honor you. We know we're just a group of imperfect people. We're made holy and righteous only by what you have done for us. And Jesus, we thank you so much for the sacrifice you made for each of us. And Lord, may we not walk through this world as people who are entitled. It is by your grace that we have been saved and by your mercy. Lord, help us to see people not as people who live by lawlessness, Lord, but help us to see people as people who need Jesus. Lord, you don't define us by our sin and our past mistakes. Help us not to do that type of judgment toward others. Lord, I pray that we will honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.